on the front door of a furniture store was a sign that read, don't lift the furniture. So one of the customers dragged the furniture across the showroom to arrange it. He didn't lift it, he dragged it, so he obeyed the rule, right? On the gate of a hotel pool was a sign that read, no swimming after dark. So around midnight, one of the hotel guests got in to just wade around, right? <laughs> she wasn't swimming, she was wading, and so she obeyed the rule, right? On the city billboard, you've seen this before, was the reminder, don't drink and drive. So the driver just took sips from his beer while he was stopped at traffic lights. <laughs> he wasn't drinking while driving, he was drinking while stopped. So he obeyed the law, right? Fallen human beings have a penchant for undermining the intention of rule and law, all while we convince ourselves that we are upholding the rule and law. The crowd of Jews surrounding Jesus during his Sermon on the Mount is really no different. Along with the scribes and the Pharisees of their day, many of them were obeying God's law in a literal fashion but they were ignoring the law's intended purpose, much like the guy in the furniture store or the woman at the hotel pool. Many of the scribes and Pharisees and Jews were content to merely not kill one another. <laughs> According to the commandment, you know, thou shalt not murder. But, and I think that most of us know the answer to this question, is that all God requires of his kingdom citizens? that we merely abstain from killing one another. Last week, as Pastor Ed mentioned in our prayer of confession, Jesus urged his disciples in Matthew 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom I've come to usher in. And I'm so glad that Pastor Ed hit on this because we need to always hit on the gospel message here. It's important we understand Jesus wasn't placing a burden on his disciples or us to earn our own way into the kingdom of heaven. By his perfect obedience to the law, by his substitutionary death and miraculous resurrection, he had come to give his righteousness to all those who trust him. But all who do trust in him, and we've talked about this here at Oaks many times before, all of us who trust in him, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ and we get to grow up into it and walk in it. By the Holy Spirit, like Jesus' disciples, we too will grow in the righteousness that Christ has given us by faith in him, and we will grow to embrace the heart of the command and his commands. By the Holy Spirit, we won't settle for merely not murdering one another, although that's good. I'm glad we're starting there, right? We will put away, in addition to not killing one another, as Jesus' people, 
with his Holy Spirit and dawned with his righteousness, we will put away every murderous thought and word and whim. Hallelujah. And like Jesus' disciples, we too will grow in a righteousness, in the righteousness of Christ that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. We will do this by his grace. We will grow in our beholding of the good godly life. The good godly life is ours in Christ today and it doesn't necessarily mean what you hear the TV preacher saying it means. It means so much better. If you haven't already, I'd invite you to turn Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26, and I'll read that now. This is Jesus to his disciples on the mount that overlooks the Sea of Galilee. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you were going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me if you will. Oh, Father, we who are in Christ by faith, we are his sheep, we hear his voice, we have been sealed, given the gracious gift of your Holy Spirit, we ask now that you might bubble up to the surface of our hearts and minds how we have maybe thought we've been obeying the command not to murder, but in fact have been undermining it. Show us, convict us, build us, strengthen us, edify and encourage us, and bring glory to your name in the process. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's message is really simple. For the remainder of our time, we'll consider two truths from this passage. Number one, if you're a note taker, we'll consider the essence of a murderous heart. And then number two, we'll consider the effects of a murderous heart. The essence and the effects of a murderous heart. Number one, the essence of a murderous heart. Jesus begins, of course, we just read it in verses 21 through 22. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, and he, notice here, he, he is not contradicting what God's perfect word has said. He is bringing out 
its fullest expression and explaining what it was always intended to cultivate. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So according to Jesus here, when God told the people of Israel in Exodus 20, and for those of us who are traveling through the Dwell Bible app together, listening and reading the word, we're, we're almost here. When God says to the people of Israel, you shall not murder, hear this right now, out of the mouth of Jesus, it had a much broader point. Similar to the hotel pool sign that said no swimming after dark. There was a, an intended depth there. What Jesus is making clear on this mount to his disciples, but of course now to us, is that there is an underlying issue of murder. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to see. It's anger. The underlying issue of murder is anger. Now, I'm not gonna spend a ton of time going into this. There are righteous reasons to be angry. Jesus' own life reveals as much. We should be angered when God is outright mocked. We should be angered. We should be angered when children and adults are marginalized and trampled upon and abused. We should be angered by those things righteously, righteous anger. Those things are worthy of anger and action. That's not what Jesus is referring to here. He is referring to an anger, listen, that broods and festers into contempt and it lashes out in a multiplicity of ways, but verbally, especially. Now, a moment of uh, vulnerability. Jesus here is referring to the kind of anger that has led me to berate my wife before. He is referring to the, to the kind of anger that has led me to fly off the handle at my kids. He's referring to the kind of anger that has spurned me or spurred me or stirred me, I suppose, into verbally decimating a brother and sister or sister in Christ. And this kind of anger is like a pebble that sneaks into your sneaker, Right? We've all had that happen. And this was actually an illustration that Pastor Jonathan Lehman gave a long time ago and it's always stuck with me. We've all had it happen where a little, little tiny pebble gets into our shoe. And at first, it's bearable, right? It's agitating, but it's not immobilizing. But the longer we allow it to fester, step after step after step, we begin to walk with a limp, don't we? And then the longer we limp, we begin to experience a crippling pain. And if we don't deal with it, a tiny, seemingly insignificant pebble has a power to take us down. And so it is with anger. And that is what Jesus gets at. He's getting at in verse 22. Everyone who broods with anger toward his brother has already murdered him in heart and mind. I mean, think about a kernel of popcorn, right? If I had one, I'm not as visual as, as Pastor Ed, but if I had one, I'd say, well, right here, this is a piece of popcorn after all. All this little tiny kernel needs is the right atmosphere and it explodes. It's already there. Everyone who broods with anger toward his brother has essentially already murdered him in heart and mind. 
It's also like shaking a carbonated drink, you know, when we allow anger to fester. Sooner or later, it's going to explode. And we've all had this happen, whether face-to-face or in the form of a social media post. That's when Christians are brilliantly, like, passive-aggressive, right? Or in the form of a prayer request. Oh, ladies, would you please pray for my friend? She is, and then we just spew gossip. Anger, there's anger there. Pent-up anger comes out. Just as Jesus addresses in the middle of verse 22, whoever insults his brother or sister will be liable to the council. He is referring here to the Sanhedrin. And whoever says to their brother or sister, you fool. Well, whoever says that, well, he or she will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, we'll talk more in a moment about the repercussions of our anger. But again, Jesus is highlighting here insults that, that, that typically happen among Christians. Look, it's, it's certainly, um, it is certainly unfitting and unmissional when Christians explode into derogatory words toward non-believers. But here, here in this immediate passage, Jesus is specifically saying to his close disciples and to us, whoever of you calls a fellow believer unsaved, unregenerate or if you tell your brother to go to hell because he's angered you it is you who will be liable to the hell of fire and this gets really sobering really quick this is the first use of the term hell in the new testament and jesus more so than any other person in scripture speaks more about hell there was an actual place to the south of Jerusalem called Gehenna. It was a rancid junkyard where trash was burned and where the corpses of criminals were left to decompose. And ever since the days of Israel's prophets, Gehenna became a symbol of what will be final judgment. Gehenna and hell became synonymous So when we write off a fellow believer out of bitterness and anger, when we despise the mere thought of a brother or sister in Christ out of bitterness and anger, when we give them the cold shoulder and we think to ourselves, maybe we have never really put it into these words, but when we think to ourselves, they can just go go there. It is we who are going up to the gate of Gehenna and hell and joggling it and getting ready to walk right in. It is we. God doesn't require us, hallelujah, to be best friends with everyone. (laughs) Just because he or she is a Christian doesn't mean you're called to be best friends with them. No, I don't even know what best friends means, but like we're not called to that. However, we are required in meekness and in purity of heart and in poverty of spirit, we're required to make peace with our fellow believers in as much as it relies on us to make peace with them despite our disagreements. It is one of the strongest apologetics of the, of the validity of the gospel and the church, the way we love one another like this. We don't write each other off out of anger and bitterness. We want to, but by God's spirit in us, we don't. 
And in verses 23 through 26, Jesus tells his disciples and us why we're to do it, how we're to do it. And I, I've, I've labeled this underneath point number two, the effects of a murderous heart. Follow me with this here and see with me the first effect of a murderous heart. Jesus' words, verse 23, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. In other words, before you attempt to worship God with your gift first, go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. If our anger Bitterness and resentment toward a fellow believer has disrupted the way that we think or speak or act toward them as innocent and as sometimes justified as it might seem to us when we give in to that it has disrupted our relationship with God that's what Jesus is getting at here because the unity of fellowship and the bond of peace between believers is in fact one of the signifiers that we ourselves are at peace with God. We say it every Sunday during the passing of the peace. Because we have peace with God, we can and should be at peace with one another. And Jesus tells his disciples and us in that verse that I've just read, we should we should wait to serve God and to serve God's church with our time and talent and money until we have done everything in our power to be reconciled with our fellow believer. Theologian Daniel Aiken comments on this and he says this and this is a bit stinging to me. It is foolishly hypocritical to try to worship God without having the clear conscience of right relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ because God is concerned with more than our external giving. He's concerned with us you know, more than with us coming in and lifting our hands and singing out loud. He's concerned with the heart that ought to be instrumental in the singing. So when we prioritize our vertical worship over and against our horizontal fellowship, God won't have anything to do with it because reconciliation is an immensely critical act of worship. It's, I think, the motivation behind the Apostle Paul's words to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.8. He says, I desire that in every place, in every church, in every community, in every place, believers should pray and worship together without anger or quarreling. So in all of this, and it's, it's quite, this is quite basic, but often basic is profound. Um, is the Holy Spirit bringing someone to your mind right now? Is another believer coming to your mind, a believer with whom you've had a divisive spout, spat on social media, face to face, another believer whom you've hurt with cutting words? Hear this. Truer and deeper worship, truer and deeper enjoyment of the good, godly life is awaiting those of us 
who are bold enough for humility, who are strong enough to humble themselves and to repent, to simply, man, if I'm here with my gift at the altar and then I'm remembering, someone's coming to mind, you know what? I might have said something that slanted them and threw them off a little bit. I just need to be bold enough to go to them and say, you know what? I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? And can we worship in unity? That's the good godly life. Now see with me the second effect of a murderous heart. In verses 25 through 26, so Jesus jumps into the scenario of, of a court lawsuit, right? He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser. Now no doubt, Jesus' disciples surrounding him on the mount, they knew what he meant. I mean, shoot, Matthew might have had some accusers. He was a tax collector for the Roman occupation. Simon the Zealot might have had some accusers. Heck, they might have been accusing one another in the middle of Jesus talking about this on the mount. Accusations can and do arise against Christians, but sadly, accusations can and do arise between Christians, man. And here, Jesus doesn't give a lot of clarity whom the accuser is that he has in his mind. He simply says this, and this is all we are to take away. Come to terms quickly, believer. Come to terms quickly. Look, even while you're being taken to court, on your way, humble yourself. And really, by God's grace, discern, is there anything you may have said or done that contributed to the lawsuit you're about to be hit with? Was there anything underhanded about your ways, your conduct, anything sideways that deserves? I mean, really discern with the help of the Spirit and the saints around you. Do you deserve a guilty verdict? Humble yourself. Make it right. Come to terms. Sort out what you owe and pay it. And hear this part. Even if the price seems a bit steeper than you think it should be, Will it hurt? Probably. Will it set you back? Probably. But remember how Jesus started the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek. It is a happy thing. It is a blessed thing to be meek and merciful and to possess a pure heart and to be a peacemaker. Oh, and by the way, blessed are you when others revile you. Hold on to that. But, Jesus' logic kind of continues, if instead, believer, if you bury your heels into the sand over this, and if the judge is forced to determine that you are guilty of wrongdoing, if it takes all of that, I promise you, Jesus says, you will be thrown into prison. Justice will be served. Your family will acquire the burden of restitution, and you won't be, be released until it's paid. This is a really, really unfortunate thing that happens in our day and age. It was happening in Jesus' day and age. Right now, I don't know, I'm not gonna mention the name. There's a, there's a Major League Baseball pitcher who's a professing Christian. His wife, a professing Christian and a worship leader in their church was caught in adultery and now they are right out in broad daylight in front of the world just 
tearing each other to pieces in a court battle over what's mine, what's yours, what's, what's ours, I want that money, I need this, I need that, all while proclaiming Christ, their kids are tortured. Their witness to the world is tarnished. And their enjoyment of the good, godly life, so long. That is not what Jesus has for us. That is not what Jesus has for us. Do we see how anger, the little popcorn kernel, anger unsettles our horizontal relationships with one another and it unsettles our vertical relationship with God? Now, full disclosure, getting angry with people is unavoidable. I mean, shoot, you might even be very angry with me right now. Fortunately, by God's grace, two brothers in this church over the last two weeks have come to me, pebble in the shoe, limping into the office to tell me, look, you know what? I'm not at the point of anger yet, but something that you said or something that you did is just a little, it's got me twisted a little bit and I need to simply talk to you about it. Hallelujah! Because now I have easy breathing with those brothers, man. We've, we've talked. We've come to terms. I've got to apologize where needed. Hallelujah. And that is for the good godly life within this body. We can and will come into this place by the righteousness of Christ and the indwelling of his spirit. And we can breathe a sigh of relief. Ah, I don't have anything on anyone and nobody has anything on me because we're so quick to come to terms with one another here. We don't let it fester. And in the process, we get to be an amazing example to the city of Worcester. This is how you deal with something according to Christ. Let's get it out and let's love each other. Getting angry with me with others is simply unavoidable. But what Jesus is making clear in this passage is it's what we do when anger arises. What are we gonna do with it? How are we gonna deal with it? All of us to a degree this morning are in some way limping around. We're holding on to some anger. And anger has this way of festering and stewing and creating bitterness. And all of a sudden, we are in a full-blown stretcher. It's not even a limp anymore. We're barely getting by. We're anxious to the core. We feel like our prayers aren't even making it. God, are you even hearing me? Well, could it possibly be thematically what Jesus is pointing to? Are we hanging on to something that isn't ours to hang on to? Instead, it's ours to approach a brother or sister or to be approached and to deal with it, the bond of peace. Only Christians, hear this, only Christians can truly be freed from the bondage of anger because only Christians behold this fact, your anger and my anger and the things you have done that have made me angry and the things that I have done have made you angry, all of those by Jesus' precious blood have been paid for in full. And there is now no debt to be settled, so to speak, between us. We, under the blood of Christ, are at peace with God and we can be at peace with one another. And we can breathe the sigh of relief when we come in here with people that, man, it's not that we're ignoring. It's not that we're sweeping little pebbles under the rug. Those things get into our shoes. It's that we're willing with the boldness and the courage of Christ to say, ah, brother, before I let this fester, I just want to let you know I kind of want to punch you because of what you said. So can we just talk about this and hug it out, right? 
That is a very Jesus way of doing it. It is. It is. And it's how we are being invited to deal with anger this morning. It's the good godly life in doing so. It's what Jesus desires for us. It's what Jesus has purchased for us in his life, death, and resurrection. And so, with that, I'll end. How about we pray? And then we'll sing a little bit more. Father, you are so gracious to us in that while we were still sinners, you had every right to absolutely obliterate us in your anger, but you did the unthinkable. You obliterated your son on the cross. He took upon himself our sin and shame. He drank it to the dregs fully. He bore it on the cross and you dealt with it there. And just before he died, he said, it is finished. And so Lord, help us to walk and to live in the it is finished of Calvary. Help us, Lord, to have the boldness to approach one another with gracious and love and just simply get it out on the table to apologize for the stupid things we've said, to ask someone to apologize for the stupid things they've said, and then to breathe a breath of relief that we are the people of God and we will, by your grace, be held unto the very end in the bond of peace and a spirit of unity for your glory and our joy. Amen.